Welcome back to Firewall. I am your host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Bradley, you are working on Labor Day. We're here in the studio. Um, it's usually kind of dead around here at you know at, at 8, 9 a.m. when we're here, but it's real dead today. Yeah, I mean, I walked over from Soho uh, and probably passed, you know, 10 people on the street in total, and seven were probably sleeping on the street. So, yeah, it was it's pretty dead. Mr. and Mrs. Trank. Yeah, pretty much. There's some, some Mr. and Mrs. Fentanyls, too, I think. Yeah. Um, so we got a couple topics for today, three, maybe four. One is um, combination of the migrant crisis and Staten Island secession, and I'll explain that. Um, the second is this sort of fantastical but kind of, I think, pretty cool tech city concept that uh, the New York Times has been sort of freaking out about in California. Um, and I want to approach it not so much from a, like a real politic, like can this thing ever happen, but more like here are the cool things that they should do if they ever get off the ground. Um, third is uh, tips for anyone conducting like a pizza crawl or a food crawl or anything like that. And then last week we were going to talk. Fall is the season for food crawls, yes, right? Yeah, officially the food crawl season. Um, and then um, if we have time, there's a little bit of health and wellness stuff that we we're going to do last week. We didn't get to it, so maybe we'll get to it today. Uh, recommendations, and then we'll have you on your way. All right, Bradley. All right, so, so, so first thing is thank you to all the listeners for the uh, feedback on the um, illegal weed shop campaign tactics last week. I uh, heard from a lot of you and really appreciate uh, all the things that you had to say. And, um, you know, we'll see if this ever gets off the ground as a, as a campaign itself, but I do think that it's at least um, a, a good template for how to run one of these campaigns. In fact, my first class of the semester is tomorrow, and I had Basil put it into the uh, into the deck, so we'll, we'll walk through it. Um, so yeah, so thanks for that. And if you uh, don't know what I'm talking about, but you're interested, I'd put together a campaign plan on how to shut the illegal weed shops in New York City and went through it in detail on last week's uh, Tuesday episode. De- definitely worth going back and listening to if you missed it, because I think it was a kind of a signature episode. Yeah. So let's start with the migrants. It's, it's a weird combination, but, but a combination I kind of enjoy. So Nicole Maliotakis, who is a conservative Republican member of Congress from Staten Island um, and, and vocal and, 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 you know, good at her job in the sense that she gets herself out there, which is basically what a congressperson does, um, proposed, uh, you know, kind of an evergreen issue, which is Staten Island secession, but she tied a, a kind of a new bow around it, which was because of the migrant crisis. So I kind of wanted to attack this in two different ways. First is, um, is she right politically about the migrant crisis? I think she is. So in 2020, in the midterm elections, the Republicans were expected to take back the House easily, um, and they did not. They won by four or five seats total, something like that. And really, where the seats were lost uh, were mainly here in New York on Long Island, where seats that were supposed to go Democrat or expected to be Democrat instead went Republican. Um, And and I think that... um, that's a bellwether in some ways for the country. No, no, no one ever considers New York or Long Island as goes, you know, Nassau County, so goes America. But um, I think in some ways for these House districts, it, it kind of is. And, you know, there was a Siena poll or Quinnipiac uh, last week saying that 82% of respondents statewide um, were upset about the migrant crisis, think, think that it's being mishandled. Um, and I think this is a real danger spot for the Democrats in that, you know, it just feels 
like plays into the worst stereotype about the Democrats, which isn't even like the ultra woke, woke one. The, the even worse one is just these people can't run anything, right? They are totally incapable and incompetent, and they have all these big ideas and fancy educations and everything else, and when shit gets hard, they're totally useless. I don't believe that, but that is the, the stereotype and the narrative that is used against them, and we've got over 100,000 migrants that have now made it to uh, New York. Um, they are not allowed to work. The Biden administration refuses to give them work permits. As a result, the city of New York has spent over $12 billion already um, housing and feeding these people. Um, and obviously, when you just have lots of people sitting around with nothing to do, bad things start to happen. So you start to hear about crime and violence and whatever else. Um, and I think best case scenario, uh, people don't think that the taxpayers should be responsible for this. Worst case scenario, they just decide that the Democrats across the board, whether it's Adams here in the city or Hochul in the state or the president, are just totally incompetent. And when we get to the elections in 2024, they just adopt a throw them all out mindset. And so the first thing is I understand that the president's polling privately must show that if he were to allow the migrants to get work permits, it would hurt him in swing districts in you know, Arizona or North Carolina or Pennsylvania or Michigan or whatever it is. Um, and that may be true, but at the same time, I think there's also some pretty clear red lights flashing that, look, if you want to take back the House or at least don't want to be down even more seats, you can't ignore this issue on the other side either, which is right now what they're doing. So, so the first thing here is I think Molly Takis is exactly right in sounding the warning alarm. Now, she's not doing it because she wants to see the House go back to the Democrats. She's a Republican. She's just using the issue for, for political gain. But I think she's analyzing this exactly correctly. What made this kind of fun is that she then went back to sort of the stand old forever um, argument from Staten Island politicians whenever they want to kind of make their poll numbers go up a little bit, which is we should secede. We should not be part of New York City. We should be our own city. Um, Staten Island became part of New York City something like 100 years ago. There was a dispute, I think, whether it would be part of New York or New Jersey, and they had a vote on Staten Island like, from like 6,000 votes and like 5,000 to 1,000. It was New York City, and they've been basically unhappily part of New York City ever since. Do you think uh, they'd be happier in New Jersey? Um, yeah, I think they probably would be. But, but I also think this, which is, here's what I, I mean, I get the secession issue in the sense that you're the borough, you're Vita Vassell, the borough president, you're Molly Takis, you're, you know, wh whoever, Joe Borelli, councilman, um, that you want to be able to use this issue because it gets you really great coverage and the people who like it, like it. And so it's sort of a, a fail-safe kind of political hit. Um, however, this was the part that I never got. So the city of New York, with the exception of cops, requires its employees to live in the city of New York. If you have for two years lived in the city of New York, you could then move to a handful of surrounding counties like Nassau or Putnam or Rockland. But that's only after two years. Um, and uh, Staten Island has a giant percentage of its workforce who are government employees. So based on some stats that I found from a um, DCAS, which is the Citywide Department of Administrative Services, uh, from a DCAS report, it said that uh, of roughly... What are we looking at here? Like 217,000 uh, people employed on Staten Island, 21.57% um, are uh, government employees, right? So we're talking about like close around 50,000 people. Um, and um, based on the New York City rules, if Staten Island were to secede, 
they all have to move or lose their jobs, right? And if you just said, okay, every firefighter, every teacher, every sanitation worker, every parks department worker, everything else, all of you either lose your jobs or have to move if this thing passes, that kills it right there. Plus the entire, Staten Island is not an economically feasible city if they lose 20% of their tax base and the most reliable 20% because the government checks come in and out no matter what every single year. And so all New York City would have to do is say like, okay, you're all fired or you can move to Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx or Manhattan. Um, and then finally, you know, while maybe the Staten Island would say, well, put us on the list with the other counties. One, you still have to wait two years. Are and there two, other counties trying to secede? No, put us on the list of counties that New York City employees are allowed to move oh, to I after see. two right, years right, of employment. Right. But I would say to them, one, you still have two years of your tax base is decimated. Plus, these people aren't going to move back to Staten Island. Well, it's clearly like a phantom issue, right? It's a kind of like Lucy with the football, Charlie Brown type thing, right? So why do they keep doing it? Because it's tried and true. It's, it's Chuck Schumer having a Sunday pre- conference to complain about the high price of breakfast cereals or windshield wiper fluid. This is, you know, look, the thesis of this podcast, as we say all the time, is basically every policy output is the result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on re-election and nothing else because they're generally desperately insecure, self-loathing people that can't without the validation of holding office. That is what we believe on this podcast. Um, and if that is the case... All they're looking to solve for is re-election, and like we've discussed a million times, primary turnout, whether it's Republican primary or Democratic primary, are both incredibly low in this country, and you just have to appeal to a handful of people who tend to be the most ideological, the most purist, kind of the least realistic, um, and so they're the kind of people who love secession, right? And so, but won't um, they turn on you if you promise it every few years and it never happens? Doesn't I don't that- think so because interestingly, the culture of Staten Island is like a downtrodden one. It is like everyone forgets about us. We're the forgotten borough. Everyone shits on us. No one takes us seriously. No one pays us the respect that we deserve. So they kind of just expect it. To be honest, so you can kind of just keep going to the well if you're a Staten Island politician <laughs> over and over again. And, and then and the do. failure just plays into the narrative, which is like, yeah, they fuck us over and I'm fighting for you. But, you know, they never, ever take us seriously. Right. Uh, but more importantly, while the mi- while the secession issue is sort of like a constant political red herring, the migrant issue, I think, is a, a very real world, real world issue that is bankrupting the city of New York um, and B. Um, is politically, I think, very dangerous, despite what the White House sees about this. Um, And look, we've seen in the last week both the governor and the mayor call for work permits uh, for the workers. Um, Bob Grinley and I, in an op in the Daily News months ago, called for creating a New York City work permit. Um, Saw over the weekend uh, State Senator Zelnor Myrie um, called for exactly the same thing. Um, And so, you know, this notion of we can't keep feeding and housing these people and we don't have the ability on our own to deport them and we have all these industries like hospitality and like healthcare that have huge numbers of vacancies that need people to work in um, and then we would turn these migrants from tax burdens to taxpayers the logic is just too clear and so i i don't think the biden administration can resist this forever so but we're stuck in a in a kind of status quo here that it's hard to see it breaking. What will break it? Why will the federal government change its position? Why will the city and state um, start I think working together better? I, uh, what's going to happen? Well, look, you have both the Senate Majority Leader and the House Minority Leader from New York City, Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer from Brooklyn, um, and they have a lot of leverage, right? And if they said, if Hakeem said, I'm going to lose the House again because of you, 
and Schumer's banging away, if nothing else, because his own numbers are, you know, maybe going down because he is seen as another person failing on this issue. Um, I think eventually, A, there's a lot of levers that Congress can pull, and, and you happen to have all of that power concentrated here in New York. Um, and B, you know, I, I don't see how this is good press for the president either of, of just sort of like, we don't know what to do. And so, you know, it may be that in a vacuum, a poll in Wisconsin says that, no, 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 we'd much rather them not be allowed to work than work because otherwise it'll encourage too many of them to come here. Um, but when you put it up against the reality of what's happening here in New York City and all the attention that it's getting nationally, um, that starts to change the equation politically. Doesn't it just play in Pennsylvania or Ohio or Wisconsin as the federal government bailing out New York, though, if they do anything? Well, except New York City's not—well, the mayor has been begging for money desperately for this. I wouldn't give him the money. I would just give him the work permits. Right. And we're not—so we're not bailing you out of anything. Right. We're in fact just saying, you don't have to pay to house and feed these people. Um, they can house and feed themselves. So you, you anticipate that's what will happen. The federal government will kneel on this one. I think eventually, because I just don't see another, or there's like, a, but this is going to really hurt them politically in the other direction with, with Latino turnout and everything else. You know, you round up all 100,000 people and to put them on planes and buses and send them back to, you know, south of the border. Um, but one, that doesn't still really solve the underlying problem because people keep getting in. And two... You know, a, a massive roundup and deportation is going to come with its own set of political challenges. Yeah, no, it's going to be ugly for sure. Um, okay, should we talk about... Um, yeah, hard pivot. Uh, hard pivot. I mean, you know, it, there's already a podcast called Pivot, right? It's like a kind of a tech podcast, Kara Swisher and Scott uh, Galloway. So, so should we call it Hard Pivot? No, but it's too bad that the name's pretty much taken because Hard Pivot has sort of become like our... After like every policy output is a result of a political input, right, the hard, pivot. Uh, hard Pivot has become our signature catchphrase. <laughs> okay. Um, so the Hard Pivot, t- t- talk a little bit about this. You mentioned at the top that this is a... Uh, there's a there's a movement of sort of tech uh, investors spending a lot of money buying yeah, property so in the Bay a, Area. A, a bunch of famous tech investors, the Collison brothers who created Stripe, Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, Mike Moritz from Sequoia, a few others, um, have collectively put in nearly a billion dollars to buy land um, in, uh, I think, a town called Solano. It is um, in the Bay Area, but, you know, a little more rural, a little less dense. Um, and their idea was, could we build sort of a utopian city uh, here in California? Um, it, it finally became public and there's been massive outcry. How dare these tech billionaires try to do something different and, you know, they're evil and they're coming for us and whatever else. Um, and I'm not going to join in on that because if nothing else, there's enough podcasts with people, you know, whining and bitching about this thing. I, I kind of thought I'd look at it the other way, which is like, if they just said, okay, what are the things, you know, you're not creating the city unless you think you can do cool, interesting new things with it, right? Otherwise, what's the point? Um, and so I made a list of like, okay, if I were the mayor of this new town and I was king, and by the way, you can be king because at least within the realm of local jurisdiction, you, you could have it where the mayor has all the power. Um, you don't have to have a legislature. Um, this is what I would do. The one thing I'll just be clear is I am not accounting for cross-jurisdictional issues, I'm sort of giving them a little more power than the city actually has. Um, so I recognize guy. Some, blue sky. some of these things probably couldn't work. But uh, one is autonomous, everything encouraged. So like we want autonomous trucks, autonomous cars, um, and all sharings, ride sharing, home sharing, food sharing, they're all allowed. Second, 
last mile delivery has to come via delivery drone. We're not going to have trucks clogging up the streets, cause emissions, traffic, everything else. Um, you want something, it's, you know, unless it's over a certain weight, it's got to come by drone. Three, you know, we've been talking about flying cars in this podcast. Vertiports are what are necessary to create places for the flying cars to take off and land. Um, as you're building out the infrastructure of the city itself, it should include vertiports. Um, fourth, and these are no particular order, by the way, um, all gaming is digital, which means uh, no casinos. But any sports that you have automatically, um, you know, the, the venue becomes a sports book um, and an arena at the same time. Um, fifth, Special zoning for co-living and co-working, you know, one of the ways that we can ultimately deal with the affordable housing crisis is by, you know, making our property a lot more efficient, which is instead of, you know, a family of four living in a 4,000 square foot house or even a 2,000 square foot house, um, you could have shared resources like bathrooms and kitchens and whatever else, still give people private space um, and have a lot more people using the, those facilities. Um, if you were to create tax breaks and special zoning purposes, especially if you haven't permitted anything for building yet, um, that could be interesting. Um, this one's a little fantastical at the moment, but California is already going through, as with the entire American West, a huge water shortage. Um, we've seen in Arizona, I think they've actually banned new construction certain in Phoenix because they just won't have enough groundwater to supply uh, those areas. Um, so how about we put a desalination plant? Uh, in this town. Um, desalination right now is still really expensive, still really um, energy inefficient, but there are some in Israel and other places. It's possible, and the technology will only get better if you keep investing in it. Um, next one, because it's California and wildfires are a, a big risk, um, I would mandate the use of both drones to help um, put out wildfires, seed forests. You know, there's literally like those startup I once met called Drone Seed. I don't know if they're still around, but they literally just drop seeds like Johnny Appleseed, but from the sky as drones. Um, and then AI to really detect, you know, any situations that could lead to a wildfire. Um, next, digital identity and mobile voting, obviously. Um, all election reforms, whether it's ranked choice voting, final five, open primaries, term limits, whatever, they're all mandated. You have to do all of them. Um, next one, uh, no public union political contributions allowed. I think that it's just a real form of soft corruption that destroys our schools and our tax base and everything else. Um, next, uh, all guns are illegal except for those that are fingerprint enabled. Next, there are innovation zones and automatic permits for new ideas. So rather than having to fight off some entrenched interest just to operate, you start with the presumption that a new idea is welcome and then you can prove that, that it's not a good idea. Um, fossil fuel vehicles banned. Um, Heavy use of virtual reality in schools and openness to all tech, ed tech ideas that can help but are currently opposed by the unions in the system. Uh, three more. One, limit the types of health care provided physically to encourage the use of digital health care. Um, universities should be focused only on the most controversial and cutting-edge tech development and maybe only offer a few disciplines as opposed to trying to be everything to everyone. Um, and finally, an income-based pay-per-use system for public facilities uh, and correspondingly lower base taxes. So um, that's a nice uh, assemblage of, of things. What if if um, I just want to give a, a real world check on this, um, not for you to criticize the concept or anything, but given the, the coverage you've read, if they came to you and said, hey, we want you to manage strategy and comms for getting this thing to actually yeah. happen. Sure. What's, what's just some of the basic? I, mean, I, I think the given? first thing is that right now they're letting and I know finally they put up a website, but they're letting the other side define them, right? It's all these, you know, dystopian 
tech billionaires who are just out to screw you and, and they're terrible and evil. Um, and you've got to prevent present a competing narrative and vision, which is say, you know what? Our cities are fucked up. San Francisco is a disaster. Oakland at this point, despite all the kind of like revival and hipness around it, is a fucking mess. And you know what? We don't want to be like that. And we can do better than that. We can give people better services. We don't have to have people at risk of um, crime and all kinds of quality of life violations. We don't have to have all this corruption. We don't have to have failing schools, hospitals that cost three times what they should to operate. You know, the American people deserve a lot better than what they're getting right now. And we can create that. And we're doing it on our own dime. We're not even asking you for money or anything else. You know, let us try this experiment. If it succeeds, great. There are things that can be learned and used in other parts of the country and parts of California. If it fails, we took the loss ourselves. Um, but, but I would really be aggressively presenting alternative vision. And I would be reaching out to, you know, the political establishment in California especially is going to oppose this, right? Because it's a huge threat to their underlying power, right? If all of a sudden people in the private sector can just create their own jurisdictions um, and ditch the politicians and the unions and everyone else, of course they're going to do that. So Sacramento or whatever, they can't let this happen, which means you've got to find your voters um, who are um, people who are, you know, not necessarily sort of day-to-day engaged kind of primary voters, but people who you can motivate because they are fed up with the system, kind of like what we did with Uber or FanDuel or Ease or Bird or whatever else, where we found customers and potential customers who want to be able to use this technology and were willing to speak up politically on our behalf. Um, And we won every single one of those. So um, you got to go target and figure out who these people are, and you got to start talking to them, and then you got to figure out how to mobilize them um, in a way that that reaches assembly members, state senators, mayors, uh, the California congressional delegation. Um, right now, the presumption is like, oh, this is terrible, right? And, and unless you change the underlying presumption, um, that's going to sort of be what you're fighting against the entire time. So, you know, some of it is is fighting them on their own turf, which is things like competing narratives in the media and digital and whatever else. But some of it is, you know, you, you've got to figure out the right narrative, and I think it's probably the one that I laid out, um, and then communicate that directly to key voters um, all over the state. Um, we're going to do another. This is our double hard pivot. Yeah, today's the day of hard pivots. Um, so we're going to we're going to pivot into. Um, uh, well, why don't you give the background? You sent me an article. I yeah, prompted this exactly. There was just a, there was a a pizza crawl through Brooklyn that the Washington Post did. It's actually quite entertaining and and pretty impressive for these things. I thought it was a, it was a lengthy article. It went to a lot of places. There are a bunch that I didn't know about. Um, I'm going to read the conclusion of the uh, of the story because I thought it was kind of good. Um, where is my conclusion to that story? Um, anyway, so I sent to Bradley because Bradley's sort of a famous. Um, uh, a, a famous well, you, sandwiches are normally your thing over pizza. F- infamous, maybe, but infamous. Yeah. Infamous. So I'll, the the background is this. So in two thousand and three, I think it was uh, or two, two actually. Um, yeah, two thousand two. We, uh, meaning me and a couple of friends, mainly from law school, created this thing called Operation Sandwich, where we picked a city, we made a list of our ten favorite sandwiches that we wanted to eat, and then we ate them all in one day. And it was not for charity. It was not for a good cause. Um, you know, it was purely hedonistic. Um, can, can we eat 10 sandwiches? <laughs> Turns out the answer is yes. Um, and then have, what's the best way to go about it? Um, we haven't done it in 
other than a, a one mini one in 2013, we haven't really done it in about 15 years. I think everyone's metabolism has kind of yeah, moved on yeah. at this point. Um, <laughs> but um, I did come up with a best practices list for people okay. uh, who I, are going to go I, on. I, I guess I won't read this. This um, I'll read no, it go ahead and read end. it. Yeah. Okay. This is just the conclusion of this of this good article in the Washington Post. Um, he writes, uh, by the end of my tour, I realized the secret sauce in the New York slice goes beyond a taste for well-done crust or carefully calibrated sauce to cheese ratios. It's not about the water or a certain brand of canned tomatoes or what method of power heats the ovens. Direct the credit to craftsmanship and decades of repetition, the handiwork that's been carried across continents and passed down through generations. Considering how cooks throughout the borough keep raising the bar, the future looks bright. It's different, Pinello said, who's a pizza owner. Um, we're not immigrants, but we're young and we're interested in the culture and the science of it. So, yeah, pretty good. Job. Yeah, makes sense. All right. So, these are my tips. Um, again, in no particular order, this is just as it occurred to me as I wrote them down. One is you got to think about sequencing, right? It doesn't really matter so much if it's like a pizza crawl, but if you're having, you know, 10 different kinds of food, um, you got to put the heaviest one at the end. So on the first operation sandwich we ever did, which was here in New York City, and obviously we were, you know, novices, um, and this was my fault because I created the uh, the itinerary. The number nine sandwich was a pastrami and chopped liver at Katz's, and it's a delicious sandwich. <laughs> but the problem is, it was a showstopper, right? It is such a dense. I mean, that one sandwich has got to be well over a thousand calories, right? Maybe more. <laughs> and, you know, like the pastrami is tough enough, but then you throw in that chopped liver, which is just sort of like cement almost in a way. And it killed everyone. And the last sandwich was really brutally hard. And so if you're going to do something as dense as a pastrami and chopped liver, um, it's it's got to be at the end of the Should uh, you leave the out day. the pastrami? Is that just too, is there a bridge too far in terms you of know, caloric? You it, know, it, like? it depends. Um, no, I mean, I think, look, the, the, the point is just to have fun, interesting sandwiches. And so it doesn't have to be like proving how, you know, manly you are by your ability to digest pastrami and chopped liver. But it is an iconic, delicious sandwich. Um, what I maybe should have done in retrospect would made the chopped liver optional. Right. Oh. Um, next one. Be thoughtful about drinking. So um, the thing that we found, because mainly alcohol takes up stomach space that you can't afford to lose, digestives. That's what you got to stick with. Like okay. Grappa. Um, Grappa. Yeah. Things it like that. Because it clears the stomach. Basically? Yeah. Yeah. You got to sort of really be careful with alcohol consumption because like the worst thing you could have is like a beer, right? That's like the kiss of death. Right. Um, <laughs> plus also, you know, you need a lot of energy. These, this goes, it's like 14 hour days. And like, if you have a couple glasses of wine, you're falling asleep. So do you, do you carry like your own grappa, like from place to no, place? No, no. You, you just sort of like, you when you go to, cause you know, you, you need breaks anyway. So when right. one of the breaks is a bar, um, or if, if it's in someone's, if it's in someone's home city and they're like, hey, come back and we'll get through to this later to the apartment and hang out a little bit in my house, you know, they could have some, it just seems ready for service. Okay. Um, weed was not legal back then. So even though it was still a part of our operation sandwiches, it wasn't nearly as prevalent. Um, if you do smoke weed, I would factor that in as a very helpful tool, right? It, okay. it should be excellent for appetite stimulation. Okay. And so Interesting. I would really lean heavily on that if I were uh, still someone who smoked weed. Nice. Um, third, this is key. You got to expand your stomach over the preceding days. People really fuck it up and they're like, oh, I'm going to starve myself. So I'm going to be so hungry that day. And then they go crazy in the first two or three sandwiches and then they hit a wall immediately. Okay. You got to eat like two breakfasts, uh, two lunches and two dinners, maybe two breakfasts every day for a week. Really? Like you got to train your stomach to increase its capacity meaningfully. And you've, you've done this. Yeah. And the thing that we did that was sort of the best one ever 
um, in terms of preparation was the first Operation Sandwich Chicago. Um, we did an Operation Sushi the night before and went to five, Bob picked out five sushi places. And I think all of that rice really helped. Right. Um, and the next day, everyone felt like really ready to take on the world of hot dogs, Italian beef. I am always stuff. starving after sushi. It's like the it's like the cliche, but it's true. Right. So, but expanding your stomach is critical. Right. Um, if you're allowing celebrity guest appearances, think about the places on the list that can handle it. So, celebrity guest appearances in this case just means people who don't want to be as disgusting as we are and eat ten sandwiches in a day, and they're like, "Can I come to one or two? So we call those a celebrity guest appearance. Um, they're not what, actual celebrities. No, no okay. actual celebrity would deign to do this. Um, <laughs> the lesson that I learned over the years is, you know, th- sometimes there are really big places, like I mentioned, Cats is right, that could hold a thousand people or more. And sometimes there are hole in the wall places. And I didn't always correlate celebrity guest appearances with the size of the place. And okay. we had a few places that got totally overwhelmed and it was fucked up. So you've got to think about that. And you can give people some guidance and say, look, you know, come to number three, come to number seven, whatever it is. And like, well, it's better for me to come at 2.15. Like, I know, but there's going to be no room for you there. Come at one thirty. come at 3. I feel like we're going to, you're going to have to write this up for people because, I mean, it's good for them to follow along here, but these are mm-hmm. some really like, you know. There's a bunch more. Yeah, no, I know there are, but I'm just saying that it's like, these are very specific, very, you know, thought through. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. Um, crazy night out the night before is a very bad idea. Right. So for Operation Sandwich Houston, we just, kind of went nuts the night before uh, which out all night right um and everybody was a wreck the next day yeah. nobody was hungry and we literally just went from place to place where nobody ate we just sort of really? ordered the food look at it eventually threw it away so was that the biggest disaster of operation yeah Church? we didn't even make it through all 10 at some point we threw in the towel oh, um so sad. But, and also weather the other problem with houston is it was so fucking hot right and that makes you not as hungry yeah so um if you're going to do a warm weather climate do not do it in the summer okay um, next one, you know, you can't account for age. Like I mentioned in 2013, I did a little five sandwich crawl in New Orleans because it was my 40th birthday. And that was about the average age of the attendee, which is a different metabolism than when you're 27. So, you know, I, I don't think in hearing this, if you're like, oh, that sounds cool, but I could never eat 10 sandwiches in a day. You know, you, you, I think you got to do five, four or five for it to be legitimate. I think otherwise it's just like a dalliance doesn't mean anything you're just like a dilettante um you know if you're serious about this you got to do better than that but i am willing to you know as the founder of operation sandwich accept five as a reasonable floor um for people uh who are no longer in their 20s or 30s okay next scoring you don't need to do it right we came up with a whole complicated scoring system in year one, I remember we were at a place right around the corner from here called 71 Clinton Fresh Food. Do you remember that? It was yeah, of course. Wiley Dufresne's Wiley Dufresne. first place. Yeah. And they had this like lamb tongue and peanut butter jelly. It was like his take on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but you know, very complicated and delicious. We got there and we made everyone in the place, like the, the waiter, the bartender, everyone like go, like subjected them to our whole scoring system, what we were doing. Oh, we were like, God. they're going to love this because this place is yeah. so innovative that they're gonna they're like get the fuck out of here right. like I had no interest at all so um the truth is it's 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 about the journey it's about the process it's not about the outcomes so you don't really need a, a, to score because you don't need a winner um boot and rallying totally acceptable um i still remember my friend brian salinas uh, puking outside of a dumpster in new orleans and he was um, good, to get, good to go yeah i mean i'll probably never get that that image out of my head but right. um to his great great credit went back in and uh and you have personally ate a muffaletta um 
Yes, after Clinton 71 Fresh Foods. That's the only time I ever did it. Oh, really? But I did. That was one And time. did you make yourself vomit or it just came? No, I, I kind of forced it that time. And I decided I really disliked that even more than the feeling of being too full. And so it was the first and last time I tried doing that. Okay. Um, depending on the city, you got to think about transportation, right? So New York, Chicago are great because it, you can walk mostly and it forces a lot of walking which then helps you digest everything better. In fact, once we did what you would love this one. We started in Flushing, and we just walked back into the city along the oh, seven I, train I, line. I would love that, yeah. We, we really expanded for that one, the definition of a sandwich. We had you know, Indian food in Jackson Heights. We had Korean fried chicken. We had you know, all kinds of stuff. But, um, but we basically walked pretty much the whole way. We must have walked five, six miles easy, and I think that, that helped a lot. But there are other places, like we did um, Operation Sandwich Austin, which really was, it was Bob's bachelor party, and it was Central Texas. And we didn't, we rented a bus, so that was good. Um, but it just didn't account for the fact that like each place was an hour or far away from the other one, and we just ran out of time. Like we didn't finish, and it wasn't, like the bus driver's like, uh, I'm done. Right. The restaurants were closed, and we were like on number eight or something. Oh, it was geez. a huge failure. Oh, um, so, you know, you gotta be careful about that. Um, next one, um, variety is is really important, right? So, so there are some cities that people would propose to me, and they had really well intentions and everything else, and, and it didn't work, like Philly, right? Because, yes, Philly has some great food. And I think the Philly of today might be a little different than the Philly of, of you know, 2005 or whatever. Right. But um, how many cheesesteaks and hoagies can you eat, right? Yeah. You, you can't have... Well, one. Yeah. Like you, you, you need real variety. If the city can't provide meaningful variety in terms of its sandwiches, then it, it should not be on the list. Okay. Uh, finally, and I mentioned before, you, you need rest stops. So you need a hotel room or someone's home. Um, you have to have a place to take breaks, which really means um, everyone needs a place to poop. <laughs> Gets down to the brass tacks here. So I think we should not do. First of all, I think you need to write this up so that people um, can can. Uh, well, I'll can tell you. We'll, we'll take a place. listener poll on that one. If if I, I we will email these to you if if you want them in writing, um, and if there's enough demand, then I'll put them on. I think a, I think that. a guidebook like a, like so designed. It's funny. Crawls. I remember this, in Chicago once the Sun Times wanted to do like a send a reporter and a photographer and do like a huge two page like Sunday spread on it, and I said no. You know uh, what happens at Operation right. Sandwich stays in Operation Sandwich like Fight Club. Right. 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 Um, now obviously we're years and years and years removed now, so maybe the statute of limitations has passed. Do you think your children are going to pick this like um, I hope have not. it up? Are they? <laughs> hope not. Do they have they ever been along for any of the Operation Sandwiches? You know, um, the one on the seven train line, they were both alive for, and um, they I do recall at one point um, them making a celebrity guest appearance. Well, nice. But o overall, they have no recollection of it, thankfully. Now, Bradley, I think you're going to disagree with me here, but I think we're going to we're going to we're going to put off the health thing again because it's another long list of things. Right. And okay. I feel like we did we just did two lists. We did two lists, and they're yeah. both they're both pretty. Here's pretty my prediction: the health and wellness thing becomes like our like Moby Dick. Yeah. We're never, never going to actually do it. Okay. We're just going to yeah, everybody else be like, yeah, well, maybe we'll get to that, and then we won't do it. Um, you have a recommendation? I do, and this one might get me a little bit of trouble with Julie, who runs the bookstore. Uh -oh. um, have you been to the new McNally Jackson on Prince Street? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's fucking spectacular. Oh my god! Wait, are you are you saying that the, the, I am. the I, I'm not saying it's better than PT. It's right. a very different vibe. It's very fancy. It is fancy. Um, it's on Prince and I don't know Wooster or Green. Right some, in there, something yeah. really fancy. Everything about it's just fancy. east of West Broadway. But but I I got it. Just and I know I shouldn't be like promoting someone else's bookstore, and they certainly don't need my help. But 
it is gorgeous. Like the, 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 the interior is gorgeous. The curation of the books is gorgeous. Like everything about it was just stunningly great. Um, now, you know, uh, it's different. It's, it's not kind of a community place like PNT Netware is, and Soho is not quite a community in the same way as Lower East Side either. But I want to give them credit because it was just like, you know, look, if I didn't love bookstores, I wouldn't be running this place in the first place. And um, I thought what they did was great. Now, one one positive for PNT, we were there on like a Thursday and found a few books that were kind of esoteric. I was like, ah, rather than buying, let's just see if we have them at PNT. Came to PNT the next day, and we had them. It was like. One was like an oral history of New Yorkers. One was like in the business of running grocery stores. So they were, it wasn't like, you know, main fiction. It was, it was kind of esoteric stuff. And so I will say that, um, some props to Julie. Yeah. Props to Julie and the team for, for having really great inventory here. Um, Bradley. So next week, hopefully we get to the health thing and, we um, yeah, we won't. Okay. Yeah, no. All right. So we'll talk about it. See you next week. See you. Firewalls recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.